look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I try to educate you about the National Football League and hopefully a few other things along the way. This week, the leading place kicker in NFL history, Justin Tucker of the Baltimore Ravens, the only kicker ever to make 90% of his field goal attempts for a career, joins me, and I'll have Gary Myers, the longtime and very well-respected sports writer who's just written a book, How About Them Cowboys, which has some really good stories about America's team. But first, I want to talk about Drew Brees. I think everybody is well aware that Drew Brees has just set on Monday night this week the all-time record for passing yards in a career. In one game, he vaulted from third to first, passing Brett Favre and Peyton Manning along the way, and now holds the record for most passing yards ever. And what's interesting is that I think that there's a good chance that this record could stand for a while. I don't know how long, but one of the issues about all these records that are being set now is that eventually they're all going to be broken because of the way the passing game is played. But I do think there's a good chance that Drew Brees ends up having more passing yards in his career than Tom Brady. And if not Brady, look at the landscape of current players. I don't think it's very likely that any veteran player right now, except maybe Matthew Stafford, uh, will have a chance to get that high into the realm over 70,000 passing yards. And who knows, the way Breeze is going, he may end up with over 80,000 passing yards. But I wanted to take a moment and just talk about a story that about Breeze that I recall uh, and that is uh, sort of seared in my mind. Uh, When I was working for Sports Illustrated back in 2010, uh, I found out that Breeze had this He called it, honestly, a secret society. Uh, He found 10 businessmen in New Orleans. Now, remember, in 2010, they were still only five years clear. Actually, when I wrote this, about four and a half years clear of Hurricane Katrina. And there were still so many things wrong with this city, so many things in this city that uh, needed to be fixed. And uh, Breeze, and, uh, in, in his mind, he needed to do something about this as well as you know, whatever he might do personally. He knew he couldn't do everything personally, even though he was involved in a lot of things. And so he founded this uh, society of, of 10 businessmen who uh, you know, would give $25,000 a year and they would sit there and decide, okay, how are we going to parcel out this money? It's just a little amount of money. Breeze also gave some money into the pot as well. And how are we going to, what little projects are we going to do to try to get New Orleans back on its feet? So what I wanted to do is I just wanted to read you uh, four or five paragraphs from this story I wrote from Sports Illustrated, and it will tell you why, in my opinion, Drew Brees uh, has done so much as a football player, but I believe as much for New Orleans' psyche and New Orleans as a city post-Hurricane Katrina. So this story starts um, in, a, in an event I went to with Brees in New Orleans, and I'll just start it, and you'll, you'll hear why I'm pretty impressed with Breeze as a human being. Last Thursday night, in a private upstairs room at Commander's Palace, the landmark New Orleans restaurant, 
Drew Brees convened what he called his secret society. In the dining room were seven of the city's richest men and biggest boosters, power players who have anonymously teamed with Breeze for such post-Katrina causes as the refurbishment of Tad Gormley Stadium in City Park and the funding of the New Orleans Ballet Association's flagging after-school program. Breeze calls this group the Quarterback Club. As a token of thanks for contributions past, and future, Breeze dispensed black and gold cufflinks engraved with QB. I'd like to propose a toast, he said, lifting his champagne flute. All of you care so deeply about the future of this city, not just from a business perspective, but from a philanthropic perspective, and it's so desperately needed right now. A toast to you and to New Orleans. Here, here, to New Orleans, the group responded. Earlier in the Saints' bye week, their quarterback had spent two hours working on another of his pet projects, the Lusher Charter School, for which he'd helped raise the money to build a new football field, weight room, scoreboard, and running track after the September 2005 hurricane had devastated the facilities and the surrounding uptown neighborhood. Now, nine days before New Orleans' playoff opener against the Cardinals in the Superdome, Breeze chatted up and rubbed elbows with the men he knew could help him do real good for this city. Some guys might be playing 10 hours of Madden today, which is cool, Breeze said as he took his seat after his toast. But this is my outlet. This is what I love to do. So that's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, I'm really impressed with Drew Breeze as a football player. But I'm a little bit more impressed with Drew Brees, the human being, who's using his star power to do something that really, really matters. And now my conversation with Justin Tucker, the kicker of the Baltimore Ravens. Back on the Peter King Podcast. Happy to be joined. Uh, I'm in New York. He's in Baltimore uh, with Justin Tucker, the kicker of the Baltimore Ravens. Um, And uh, Justin... um, has had quite a young career uh, to his name so far. He's the only kicker in NFL history uh, to have made more than 90% of his field goals. He just recently played his 100th NFL game. Um, and I, I was struck recently by watching him um, in Pittsburgh in week four of this season. I was struck by what an incredibly automatic kicker he has become and I don't want that to be taken for granted because I've gotten to know Adam Vinatieri pretty well over the years and I I always think that the unfortunate thing a lot of times when it comes to kickers and punters is that people really just kind of take for granted what they do and the only time you really notice them is when they shank one or when when they get one blocked or when they miss one you're supposed to make them. You know, I sound like Bill Parcells now. That's what, that's what he always used to say. What are you talking about? He's supposed to make it. And uh, that it actually does take quite a bit of skill and mental preparation. Anyway, Justin, happy to uh, have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. So I, I want to start really with Pittsburgh. And I want to ask you, I believe now you have made 17 consecutive field goals in what I would call the Bermuda Triangle for kickers, Heinz Field, <laughs> where people just don't seem to have much luck, especially at the longer kicks. A, what is it about Heinz Field that's tough? B, uh, has anybody informed you of this because you've made 17 in a row there? Uh, so I'd, I'd say uh, to answer part A, uh, what makes Heinz Field a tough place to kick at? Uh, it would be the same things that make Baltimore a tough place to kick. Um, I've maintained over the last several years that, uh, especially since we've gone to grass here in Baltimore, uh, we have one of the tougher stadiums to kick in as well. Um, Cleveland, uh, Cincinnati, everywhere that we play in our division, uh, you know, we're playing outdoors. You're playing in some weather. Uh, and it's just a matter of you know, compartmentalizing each and every one of our opportunities that we get and just taking each kick for what it's worth. 
uh, and doing our best to you know put it through. But um, what makes what makes Heinz Field, uh, Cleveland, Baltimore, and Cincinnati for that matter a tough place to kick? Tough places to kick. Uh, it would be first of all the grass surface, uh, you know, that uh, Heinz Field and and uh, M&T Bank Stadium have. Uh, throughout the course of a game, the grass field can get chewed up. Uh, it's never going to be the same in the fourth quarter as it was in the first quarter of pregame. Um, so getting your footing right, uh, getting a firm plant so you're balanced through the swing, uh, that's that's definitely something that uh, we have to take into account. And then, uh, you know, we're, we're playing outside in our division, and uh, we're dealing with wind on a pretty regular basis. Uh, the other night we, we happened to have as calm a night as I could remember in Pittsburgh. Uh so, you know, it was just about hitting a straight ball, getting the footing right, uh, you know, swinging up and through. And, you know, that that certainly makes things uh, a little bit simpler. But, uh, uh, you know, all of those things do make it a little bit more interesting than, you know, playing inside, so to speak. Um, Justin, I, I have always thought that one of the interesting things about being a kicker in the NFL and you have elucidated this on several occasions, that one of the things about being a kicker in the NFL is that oftentimes you're not treated the way other players, you know, who, who play from scrimmage and who, who get, you know, get knocked around maybe a little bit more than you do. You're oftentimes off by yourself, either you and the holder and the snapper, you and the punter, whatever. But you're oftentimes off by yourself for large periods of practice. And so, therefore, there's a lot of times where you're, it's a team sport, a huge team sport, but you spend time by yourself or in a very small group away from the team a lot during practice. A, what is that like uh, to then come into the larger group? Uh, and B, what does that? What does the preparation feel like when you're not oftentimes with the larger group? Yeah. Um, so I would answer that by saying, it, it, while seemingly I'm off by myself, it's more like we as specialists we are off by ourselves. So we're still with um, you know our kicking battery, so to speak. Uh, Morgan Cox, our long snapper; Sam Cook, our punter and holder, and. Uh, uh, Randy Brown, our kicking coach, and Jerry Rosberg, we all make it a point to uh, follow our routine, work through the same things, um, you know, each and every opportunity we have on the practice field. Uh, I'm not just over there with a, a, a tee and a, and a ball just kicking out a light pole by myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm working with uh, all of those guys, um, and I think that's part of the reason why we've been really good as we work on uh, – you know, making ourselves just just a little bit better each and every day within our operation. Uh, you know, we're working on our timing together as a unit. I think we're one of the longer tenured uh, field goal operations in football right now. Uh, and that level of uh, comfort that we have, that level of uh, confidence that we have going out onto the field is – you know, largely unmatched just because of the amount of time that we spend together uh, and not just on our own, doing our own thing. Um, and then when we get into a team setting in practice, uh, it's just like anybody else. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're kind of, uh, you know, getting a chance to put your talents on display uh, for your teammates in a little bit more of a pressure situation uh, just to build up, you know, toward what it's going to feel like on Sunday when you, you know, you're jogging out there in front of 60-some-odd thousand uh, fans who are hoping that you do not do your job well. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, while it, while it could seem like I'm off by myself just doing my own thing, we really are, and I emphasize the we, we really are working on making each other better. Uh, we might be separated in a sense, but um, I would associate it to – a lot of a lot of people make the comparison between kicking and putting and uh, and golf, how it's a you know similar motion, a static ball moment in time. Um, but I think I would more closely associate what I do on the football field with what like a Mariano Rivera does on the you know on, on the baseball uh, in the baseball world, um, where 
you know, we are expected to come in and perform at an exceedingly high level uh, with a limited opportunity uh, or a limited number of reps, rather. Uh, so, you know, while our offense might be out there for, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80 plays a game, I might be out there for uh, eight, right. including kickoffs. But, uh, you know, those three or four or five opportunities that I get that, you know, our offense, our defense put us in position, uh, they're expecting me to come back to the sideline with points. Um, so in that way, you know, I think we're, you know, I'm, 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 I'm probably a little bit more similar to a closer in baseball in that, you know, I just got to make sure, I got to make the most out of the limited number of reps and, you know, hence the name specialist. Right. Justin, let's, let's just go back in time to when you entered the league. You were not, um, uh, you weren't, a bonus baby. You weren't a, you weren't even drafted. You came into the league in 2012, basically on almost a tryout basis with the Baltimore Ravens. And you came to camp that year and you beat out a veteran, Billy Cundiff. But it's almost the same thing. I've asked this question to Adam Vinatieri because he had a very rocky path into the NFL, a totally no guarantee path where there was mm-hmm. one team, one team that asked him to come in and kick for him, the New England Patriots. And after three games of his NFL NFL career, in game three, he was one of four in field goals. And he entered his fourth game of his NFL career in 1996, thinking that if he missed a couple of kicks, he's going, he wasn't going to get on this kicker go round. Okay, where right. where he was going to go try out for four teams, and he was going to. He thought that quite literally, he was going to go back to South Dakota and go to med school, and if he was really fortunate and really lucky, he was going to study, and one day he'd be a cardiologist. That's really what he thought was going to happen in his life if he had a bad game in September twenty two years ago. So I <laughs> I, I want to ask you about your path, which was really, you were not an in-demand guy coming out of the University of Texas in 2012. Yeah, somehow I was, I was hiding down there in, uh, in Bernard. <laughs> nobody, nobody knew about me playing for the flagship school of the great state of Texas. Who would have thunk it? So what were you feeling like in May 2012 um, when, when you were trying out and when you were kicking for the Ravens that spring? Sure. Well, 22-year-old me felt completely slighted, uh, <laughs> just pissed off, disappointed. Uh, you know, that whole chip on, chip on your shoulder thing, uh, I think I, I really applied that to, uh, you know, what I was trying to accomplish on the football field. But looking back, uh, looking back at the, the whole draft process for me, how that, or rather the, uh, you know, going undrafted uh, process for me, um, I look at the draft now just as a whole, and it's such an inexact science. Uh, you know, you can, you can have one guy who's, uh, you know, just a total baller that comes in, he's a first-rounder, and he's everything you expect him to be. And then the next guy, uh, you know, a pick later or a pick before, he, you know, he, the, the most he might do in his career is, uh, you know, he might amount to a role player, which is, um, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is sometimes. But uh, I look back at uh, my path into this league, and you know, I think uh, in a kind of serendipitous way, everything worked out exactly how it was supposed to. I mean, I, you know, I landed, um, I landed in a place where I had an opportunity to compete and make a team, and um, you know, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. Uh, and then, you know, a whole perfect storm of events led us to win a Super Bowl my rookie year, and. Um, you know, now I'm just itching to get back to another. But, um, you know, in a in a you know long story less long, I think I, I ended up exactly where I needed to be for for all the right reasons. One of my favorite Justin Tucker stories happened in 2013, Baltimore at Detroit, <clears throat> tight game. You would kick five field goals in the first 58 minutes of the game, 29, 24, 32, 49, 53 yards, but. The Lions went ahead late. The Lions were ahead by a point, 16 to 15. Ravens are driving, and they stall. You stall, and you go out there, 
and you line up for a 61-yard field goal, which not that this is the greatest thing ever, but there's never been a 61-yard or longer field goal ever kicked in a dome stadium. But here you were, Monday night football, going out for that kick. I want you to tell me what you remember about that kick. Uh, what I remember about it is <laughs> uh, that I don't feel like I got all of it. I kind of I kind of came off my toe a little bit. And as soon as it left my foot, I'm pretty sure Sam uh, Cook had the exact same feeling that I did, which was, oh, man, left this one just a little short. And sure enough, the thing kind of, you know, wobbled around a little bit and then snuck in through that, you know, right side of the uprights. Um, but uh, I, I, if anything, you know, that I could point – if I could point to any singular feeling that I had as soon as the ball – uh, cross a you know cross a crossbar was relief because uh, moments prior to the kick I had just basically run out onto the field and was being you know more or less called back by the entire coaching staff I'm like what's he doing out there and you know, if, if I'm running out there like I I better make the kick. <laughs> um, you mean you but, thought uh, you you went out there prematurely and you thought that they might want to run another play instead of trying a sixty one yarder. Like maybe a little bit at first, yeah. I was, you know, I was a, you know, I was kind of a running out there. I, I turned to Harbs. I say, I got this, and he's like, All right, well, we're kicking it. And then, uh, you know, I realize, oh, okay, you know, this isn't fifty eight, fifty nine. This is sixty one. Uh, I'm gonna really have to get a hold of this ball. Uh, and especially since I just told Harbs, I got this. Well, I better got this. So uh, fortunately, we were able to put that one through the uprights, and then. Uh, Matt Elam puts a game away with a game ceiling interception, uh, you know, on the next drive. So, uh, I, I would definitely say that's that's one of the, you know, one of my favorite kicks that that I've been a part of. Um, and you but, didn't uh, even get yeah, all just of it. relief, man. Uh, <laughs> just relief, relief that it crossed, it crossed on the on the the pro side of the uprights. Harb's obviously being uh, Baltimore head coach John Harbaugh, uh, who's been there uh, since you've been there and long before, actually, but. Um, Something happened after that game that I had heard about. I was I didn't cover that game, but I had heard about it that you were sort of reminded of your mortality after the game by by Ray Lewis. Tell tell everybody the story about what happened in the locker room after that game. I'm thinking here. Oh, okay. okay. I think I know. I know, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> you I know what was, I'm talking no, about. No, I think. No, it was it was Sizz. Yeah, it was Sizz. Sizz. Uh, oh, you, Sizz it, made it, Terrell Suggs. Yep, Sizz okay. made sure to remind me. I'm up there on the podium um, doing the, the post-game press conference, answering a few questions, and then I, I hear the door kind of, you know, kind of come open, and Sizz pokes a head in. I don't even know if he came into the room. I think I just heard him yell, Hey, Tuck, don't let it get to your head. You're still just a kicker. Insert, You're still you know, a bleeping whatever, kicker. Whatever you want into the blank there. <laughs> but... Uh, um, he said, hey, listen, I just saved your bacon. I scored every point that our team scored today, buddy, and I kicked a 61-yarder to win it. Hey, maybe I'm a little bit more than just a bleeping kicker. Hey, his attempt at humbling me didn't really work. If you ask any of my teammates, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm tough to deal with sometimes. But, hey, man, that's what, you know, when you make kicks, you can, you know, you have a little fun, and then, you know, when you miss one, you just got to, you know, maintain that same level of confidence and that's tough to do but yep Suggs uh definitely gave me a uh not so friendly reminder but uh you know we we know says well and uh we know at the end of the day it's coming from a very good place it's coming from a place of love support for peter king comes from our friends at rocket mortgage by quicken loans america's premier home purchase lender Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process. And here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. 
They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then, once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep that new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com king. That's rocketmortgage.com k-i-n-g. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org, number 3030. Justin, I, I, I want to ask you a couple of things about your mental approach to kicking um, I I find it interesting that um, that over the years that there's a lot of kickers who, for whatever reason, I'm thinking of Roberto Aguayo, who who honestly I feel sorry for more than anything else because obviously he's a tremendously talented guy, but he just wasn't <clears throat> accurate enough to keep his job after being a second round pick with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And and I wonder when I look at you, I I've always wondered this: what is it about the mental side of what it is you do and the pressure that you're under that just simply doesn't seem to bother you at all? Yeah, I think um, you know I, I I've been asked a handful of times: um, do you ever get nervous or are you ever scared before you attempt a field goal? Uh, you know, do you have butterflies in your stomach? And the honest answer is. Uh, like uh, hell yeah! Like I'm nervous, I'm scared, but it doesn't signify a lack of confidence. Um, finding your confidence through feelings that are tough um, is a challenge, but I think that's what you know is the. Ha- I think that is the hallmark of a great specialist. Uh, is a guy who's able to harness the energy from you know, you know, feeling nervous or being dare I say scared. Uh, and turning that into laser-like focus. Um, you know, I don't think you have to look any farther than Adam Vinatieri, the best ever to do it, and uh, he'd probably say the same thing. Like, you know, like, yeah, it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be scared, but, um, you know, that, that doesn't mean you're not confident and uh, in, that you, you know uh, deep down inside you are good enough to make this kick. Um, you know, so that's something. I mean, that's that's something I tell myself more or less, uh, probably less because there's you know a lot less time between the snap, the hold, and the kick. Uh, you know, than my explanation that I just gave. You know, those 1.3 seconds though, you you can think a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, uh, just being confident, trusting your technique, uh, enjoying the moment, uh, acknowledging that, yeah, I'm a little nervous, but I'm getting to play you know, NFL football on Sunday night in Pittsburgh, or I'm getting to play on Monday night football. Um, you know, you, you just got to embrace those opportunities and uh, just enjoy them. And that's, you know, that's, that's just what I try to do. What do you think you've learned about the mental approach to kicking since you've been in the NFL? Give me your, give me the lessons that you think you have learned about it. Sure. If I had to point to one thing, I would say, uh, think of the action and not the consequence. Um, it would be really easy to get ahead of yourself and, you know, think about, uh, oh, what's my post-kick celebration going to be like? Or on the flip side of that, man, I hope I don't miss this kick. Uh, it, it's, it's, it would be very easy for anybody, um, you know, from, uh, from the, you know, the, the top ranks of the NFL all the way down to, you know, middle school football, uh, it would be very easy for any kicker to think any of those thoughts. Um, but and you're saying you day, don't? Well, at the end of uh, sure, of course. But at the end of the day, uh, thinking of the action of kicking the ball, having a you know a wide square plant and finishing up and through, matching my foot up to the ball at contact, uh, thinking of you know things in as simple terms as possible, just breaking it down and kicking the ball. Uh, solves all of those problems. My grandfather told me in high school when I, you know, 
had a had a chance to play for my varsity football team, he said, uh, "Justy, I'm just going to tell you one thing: just kick the damn ball." <laughs> I and, like that. And in, 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 all, in all sincerity, those are uh, you know some of the uh, best words of advice that I've ever received. And you know, keeping it as simple as just kicking the damn ball makes uh, you know makes a lot of those problems just disappear. When you ever look, if you do, at your stat line, and look down and see that all the kickers in the 99-year history of this game. The greatest one, other than you, the first two numbers on their percentage is 88. Made 88% of their kicks in their career. The first two numbers on yours are 9 and a 0. 90% kicks in your career. Your two percentage points as we record this ahead of anybody who's ever kicked a ball in an NFL game. That is kind of gee whiz, I would think. But what do you think when I say that to you? I'm just trying to make the next one. I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record or that I don't appreciate uh, that. You know, that's tough to do. That's tough to uh, that's tough to accomplish and to keep going. Um, but I'm just thinking about making the next kick, taking it one kick at a time. Um, and those, you know, thinking in that way, I believe serves us well as a football team, as a field goal unit. Uh, just thinking about, you know, like I said a minute ago, the action and not the consequence. Just thinking about the next kick and making that one. Um, I think that leads to us making more kicks than not. Um, you know, and when it's all said and done, hopefully that number stays uh, at least where it is, and it you know it, it gets you know it gets higher. But uh, you know, it's about taking it one kick at a time. And that might sound like a really boring answer, but uh, you know, and like you know I what? Said, honestly, ago, honestly, really... if you say if your grandfather said, "Hey, just make the damn kick," that's the same <laughs> thing as just make the next kick. You know, yep. I mean, you're not complicating it. That's probably yep. a part of it. I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you on that. Um, at the exact same time, uh, coming out here onto the practice field and grinding through the details of how we make a kick. Uh, I'll hit one right down the middle, and on film, it might look you know like everything that you want it to be, but there's a you know there's a feeling there that I could have got that one a little bit better. And Sam will know. Uh, Morgan will know. Jerry and Randy. Morgan, will your know. snapper. Sam Co- Morgan Cox, your snapper. Sam Cook, your holder, right? Yep. Yep. Jerry uh, Rossberg, so, your special teams coach. Yep. And yep. Randy Brown, our kicking yep. coach, who's 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 with us uh, on a regular basis. You know, we all know. We know each other well enough to, you know. I, I wouldn't say nitpick, but I mean that's kind of what we do sometimes. You know, we just grind on the details of what makes a kick the best it can be. Um, so you know, I might hit one that looks really good, but we know, we all know I could have hit it just a little bit better. I'll especially know I can get a hold of that ball a little bit better. So you know, we line it up again, and we you know, and that's that's the stuff that we're doing. Like you said, uh, you mentioned earlier when you know I'm off on everybody else is on field one, and I'm over on field three or um, it, you know, later in the year when you know we'll have a little bit of weather, uh, and the rest of the team needs to practice inside. You know, Jerry and Randy, Morgan, Sam, and I will all go outside, and uh, we'll you know we'll try to get as much experience outside, grinding through the details of what we do. Um, all of those things lead to us making kicks when we need to make them, for sure. You know, you always hear about offensive lines. They're better when they stay together. I'll never forget one of the first teams I ever covered was the New York Giants in the 80s. And they had an offensive line where the sum absolutely was better than the individual talents of the parts. Uh, if there was a pro football focus in those days, I think most of those guys would be in the in the bottom half of their individual jobs. But collectively, they played 48 games in a row together, and they were really good because they knew what everybody was doing. And I wonder, do you believe that, and this is such a layup question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, that the fact that since the moment you walked in there, 
you know, or or for really for a long time. You've had you've had John Harbaugh, you've had Jerry Rossberg as your special teams coach. Mm-hmm. You know, you've had you've had for so long. You've had the same holder in Sam Cook, your punter. You've had the same snapper in Morgan Cox, and you'd have you've had you. What does that mean? to that that sort of togetherness that cohesiveness what does that mean to your job and your success oh it's paramount uh having that continuity uh between all of us uh having that open line of communication between each and every one of us uh to where we can pull out the best from each other um that's it's huge um the way the way Morgan approaches throwing the ball back there, Sam uh, works on his hands uh, to the point where I, I would I would say Sam's hands rival you know like a Odell Beckham any day of the week. Uh, it, you know you got a uh, you got guys that grind on these on these uh, details together. Uh, you know the ball the ball almost kicks itself. You got to have the right guy to kick it, but. The you know the way these guys serve it up for me, it's uh, you know it's it's the best possible situation that a kicker could a cooker, a kicker could uh, could possibly want to be in. I'm going to finish with this question. Um, I wonder. I would consider, and Bill Belichick just talked about it this week. I would consider the best kick for the circumstances that I've ever seen in my life. Adam Vinatieri's kick through the snow in the playoff game, the Tuck Rule game against Oakland. Mm-hmm. In 2001, that was the Patriots' first Super Bowl year. Do you have any recollection of watching that kick when you must have been whatever, like 11 years old or something? Do you have? Do you? Were you watching that game, or do you remember seeing that kick at all? I do. I do. I remember seeing. Uh, I remember that whole Super Bowl run uh, and Adam Vinatieri knocking down the winner. Uh, that was when they played the they played the Rams that year. Yes, correct? that's right. Okay. Yeah, so I remember. But do you remember, remember the that. kick against the Raiders? That forty-five yards in the snow. Do, did you watch that? I do. That's far, and I'm I'm with you. That's far and away the most impressive kick that I've ever seen anybody make. Um, uh, to to be able to come through in that moment, uh, as big a moment as that that is, in as tough conditions as you could possibly be facing, and that's why he's a goat. That's why Adam is the the best to do it. Um, but uh, I remember seeing that and seeing the Super Bowl uh, following and then uh, seeing Adam kick not just one but two winners in Super Bowls. Um, that was what prompted me and uh, my dad to reach out to the guy who had initially trained Adam uh, when he was living in his, basically living in his pickup truck in this guy's driveway in Abingdon, Virginia, uh, Kicking next to a to a graveyard, learning how to kick a ball, uh, you know the right way. Uh, and that that coach is Doug Blevins, of course. Yeah. Um, but seeing those, seeing Adam make Blevins those kicks, is the guy who taught who taught Vinatieri. Uh, yep, and uh, seeing seeing Adam make those kicks prompted you know us to you know get my first formal introduction into or formal instruction as to how to properly kick a ball. Um, Were you at the time that, you know, a kicker you're, you're down how, in Texas? How to uh, kick a ball properly? I don't want to split my infinitive there. You were uh, you were a kicker in Texas at the time as a kid, or no? I, I want to say I was. What what year was that game? Um, two thousand one. Summer right. of yeah, two, so was, winter of two thousand one. Yeah, that's right. So so I yeah I was uh, I was playing soccer. I hadn't started playing football yet, but I was playing soccer, and uh, it was you know. It was those kicks that, you know, the, the Super Bowl winner against the Panthers. Um, and then looking back even farther, you know, once I got a chance to kind of dive deep into Adam's resume of big kicks, and there are a lot of them, uh, seeing all of that together is what prompted me to really take kicking the ball seriously. Wow. I had no idea about that. That's really, really interesting. Um, well, listen, we could talk for three hours Someday maybe we will, but I really, really appreciate you uh, talking to me about kicking and your life and what got you into it and everything like that. Justin, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me, Peter. (laughs) 
You know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash king. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes. It identifies people with the right skills and education and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. So you get quality candidates fast. They're not just quality candidates, they are qualified candidates. No more sorting through the wrong resumes, no more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash king. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash king, K-I-N-G. Once more, ZipRecruiter.com slash king. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. And now my conversation with Gary Myers, author of the new book, How About Them Cowboys. Back on the Peter King Podcast, happy to be joined today in studio by Gary Myers, who has written a really, really interesting book you're going to hear a lot about this month. It's called How About Them Cowboys. And of course, it's a book about the Dallas Cowboys that Gary Myers covered in the 80s, broke a lot of stories on in the 80s was an absolute burr in the saddle for uh, the old cowboy regime of Tech Schramm, Gil Brandt, Tom Landry, uh, but also very, very highly respected by them as well. But anyway, Gary, uh, happy to be joined by you, and uh, how are you doing? I am doing great. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. We uh, – I, I – it, this is the way I feel about books about the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, what else is there left to say? Right. I mean, right. you know, about this era, the last era, whatever era, about anything about Jerry Jones. But this is the thing that I find interesting about this book. Okay. So, and I'm, I'll am i be honest with you, I have not read it cover to cover, but I have, uh, I spent two hours with it the other night going through it, searching out little snippets to ask you about. And there's a lot of interesting little points that you make in here. But I want to start by asking you a journalism question. Sure. When something is such well-trod ground, and everybody has written and talked about them, they got the biggest media contingent in the world and, and all that, what makes you so confident that you can come up with something that people don't know or that you can come up with a book full of stuff that people don't know? Well, that's a great question. And uh, I think I'll start by saying that I feel I have a unique perspective on the Cowboys having been there for eight years and covered them on a day-to-day basis and been there for the end of the Landry regime and the very beginning of the Jerry Jimmy regime. So um, I think I have that background ingrained in me just by being there. Um, Then I I think there was a lot of um, territory that needed to be covered uh, in this book. I I know that Jeff Perlman came out with a book, I think like 10 or 12 years ago maybe, um, that just took a a completely different approach. That was, you know, more, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word scandalous, but a lot of the stuff that happened behind the scenes you know, off-the-field stuff that um, kind of um, played into the page six mentality that a lot of people have. And it was it was a very interesting and um, an interesting read. The approach I t- – originally the name of the book was going to be Cowboys, Inc., and I was going to write just about the business aspect of the Cowboys and how a team that hasn't been in the Super Bowl in over 20 years is still the most popular, profitable, and um, highly valued team in the, in the world. And then, you know, I started talking to Jerry and, and Stephen and Charlotte and Jerry Jr. and then Romo and Witten 
and then Everson Walls and Tony Dorsett. I just found there was a lot of stuff there that really interested me. So I condensed that Cowboys Inc. idea into chapter two. And the rest of it, I think, is really fun behind-the-scenes stuff about how this really what is a $5 billion mom-and-pop operation, how it really works on a day-to-day basis. I think there's some great anecdotal-type stories in there that that people are really going to enjoy reading. I want you to start at the beginning because, to me, the Jerry Jones-Tom Landry relationship, for those, for our younger listeners who don't quite remember this, Jerry Jones bought this team in 1989, and when he bought the team, he had to make a gigantic change, he felt. Um, He got rid of the coach, Tom Landry, uh, and he got rid of basically all the people who were closely identified with the Dallas Cowboys at the time. You know, you're getting rid of Tech Schramm and you're getting rid of Gil Brandt. And this at the time, they had had a nearly 30-year run of greatness, maybe 25, 23 of greatness, right. but a 30-year memorable, memorable run. And he, he got rid of all of them. And, and the story for years was that Tom Landry went to his grave hating uh, Jerry Jones and being bitter over being fired. And you contributed some reporting to this that I have to admit I had no idea about. Yeah, I mean, in speaking to Jerry, um, I asked him how many times did he run into Landry between the time he went down to Austin to fire him and when Tom passed away, uh, in the early 2000s, and he said he had seen him uh, a year or two later at the Giants-Ravens Super Bowl in Tampa. They just kind of crossed paths at a restaurant. And then after that, he kept asking Tom to let him be inducted into the Ring of Honor, and Tom kept turning him down. And then Jerry told me this story, and I, I didn't know this, that there were signs on the highway in Dallas ridiculing Tom for not accepting Jerry's invitation to be in the Ring of Honor, calling him a chicken, and uh, I would have liked to have seen some of those signs. <laughs> but um, so Jerry was really bothered by that, and one of the reasons he bought the team was because of the success that a guy like Tom Land that Tom Landry had in, in developing the image and the reputation and the brand of the Cowboys. It made it very attractive for Jerry to want to buy the team, but he wanted Jimmy Johnson as his coach. He wanted he would have wanted Jimmy Johnson as his coach as his coach, regardless of who was coaching. The Cowboys. So he felt really bad about the relationship that he didn't have with Tom. And they had a mutual friend named Bill Parker, who was at the time the president of Kroger's, a really big supermarket chain throughout Dallas and other parts of the country. And and Bill uh, acted as the intermediary and offered to set up a lunch between Jerry and Tom at, at Bill's house in Dallas. And And Tom accepted the invitation. And they sat around the living room for a little bit. And then uh, Bill had a uh, a lunch set up in the dining room, and, and he left the two of them alone, and, and they spoke for hours. And they came out of that lunch with Tom having agreed to be inducted in the Ring of Honor. And, and a couple months later, during the 93 season, Tom Landry uh, stood at midfield at, at Texas Stadium and accepted uh, being inducted. It's a really cool story. And then Jerry later got the, the statue of, of Tom outside Texas Stadium, when that stadium was about to be imploded and they were opening the new one, Jerry put the stadium, uh, the statue in storage for safekeeping. And that was once the stadium was complete, they, they put it back up outside one of the gates at AT&T Stadium. So uh, I don't know how much contact they necessarily had in the years after uh, the Ring of Honor and then Tom passing away like eight or ten years later. But I know that they were on good terms and that lunch is what set it all up. I, I was going to ask you, so how do you think Tom Landry felt in his last years on earth about Jerry Jones? I think he was fine with him. I, he really did understand that when the team gets sold, and it was the second time the team had been sold, when Bum Bright bought the team in 84, he was about as hands-off an owner as you can possibly imagine. He hated Landry, 
but wouldn't fire him. He hated Landry because he ignored him at a cocktail party once, and he never forgave him, and wanted <laughs> Schramm to fire him, but Tex wouldn't do it. You know, Peter, Peter the really interesting thing, and, and this is the truth, and I lived through this, so I know. In 1988, the Cowboys were 3-13. and 13. In 87, the fans loved the strike team, the replacement team, more than they loved the regular team. They wanted the, the players to stand on strike in 87 because the replacement team to them was fun. And it was a young team and they cared. And they had grown tired of the Landry era. The Cowboy fans used to call up Brad Sham's radio show in Dallas and plead with them, Tex, please fire Landry. The game has <laughs> passed him by. We've had enough of Landry. We need one of these young guys in here. So then in February of 89, Jerry Jones comes in, does exactly, exactly what but the But wait, fan- I want to interrupt you yeah. and ask you one question okay, about that. But isn't it true that the Dallas Cowboys almost, almost in Tech Schramm's last year, you know, before he got fired, almost hired Marty Schottenheimer? You know, I never heard the Schottenheimer part, but he tried to hire Jimmy Johnson. That I know. Wow. Uh, so I, I perhaps was Schottenheimer to be the head coach as far as? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, and I know that Tex and Schottenheimer were close, I think, because of the competition committee. Right. But the story that I heard was that Tex reached out to Jimmy because Jimmy uh, was, was rumored to be talking to the Eagles and, and said, we don't want you to go to Philadelphia. Come here as a defensive coordinator. It's only going to be a matter of time before I convince Tom to quit and you'll be the head coach. He actually did that with Paul Hackett in 86, hiring him from the 49ers. Tom hated Hackett. Uh, He was made the passing game coordinator at a time that everybody was just an offensive coordinator. It's always pretty tough when you get told to hire a guy on your staff, you know? And and Jimmy said, Jimmy, like, I don't know if he's got revisionist history or what, but he claims that he doesn't recall that conversation with Tex offering him to come in as the coordinator. But Tex told me the story, so I know that it was true. Uh, and, and Jimmy, at that point, had won a national championship in Miami, and, and he wasn't going anywhere unless he was going to be a head coach. So, And anyhow, just to finish this up, in February of 89, Jerry comes in. Bumbright had offered to fire Landry for him to kind of let him start with a clean slate. And Jerry says, no, you know, I, I want to be a man about this. This is my decision. I'll do it. So you get this guy from the wrong side of the Red River in Arkansas coming in and firing, you know, St. Landry, who all of a sudden became a martyr. Peter, they threw him a parade in downtown Dallas uh, with 100,000 people showing up after he got fired. The same fans wanted to hang him in effigy three months <laughs> earlier. So Reminds I o- me of Eli Manning now. Yeah, I know. Joke, you know. So I always contended that getting fired was the best thing that happened to Landry in the post-football years because instead of going out as a coach who a lot of people thought the game had passed him by, he went out as this martyr figure, like poor Tom, you know, Jer- how dare Jerry Jones fire our Tom when in, in reality they wanted him fired and Jerry did what they wanted. Uh, with Gary Myers, uh, author of a new book on the Dallas Cowboys, which I really like. How about them Cowboys? Inside the huddle with the stars and legends of America's team. Gary, I think not many people know. The next two things I'm going to ask you about are things that I don't believe many people know. The first one is, when Jerry Jones bought this team in 1989, he was stretched so thin to buy this team, to come up with the cash, that there were times during the process where even he admitted to those closest to him, I don't think I have the money to do this. Uh, this is really going to be a stretch. How, how, so A, how desperately did Jerry Jones want to buy this team when it was really at its nadir of 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 being any good, you know? And then do you think there was a chance that maybe he wasn't going to get approved? Well, I think the only way he wouldn't have got approved if he didn't come out with this wonderful golden parachute for Tex Schramm because um, uh, Tex was very close with Roselle and all the owners and and Jerry was, was running him off. So at the point that it came for Jerry to get approved or not approved, um, I don't think it was an issue. The financial part was an issue. And besides the fact, 
and they changed the rules after this. He had already fired Landry. He had gotten rid of Schramm and Brandt, and now they were going to say, no, we're not approving you? So they changed the rules that these, these guys who are buying teams can no longer make these changes until they get approved, which makes a lot of sense. But the Cowboys were losing a million dollars a month when, when Jerry took over. Right. And uh, that was a terrible strain on him. And that's why he was concentrating almost entirely on the business side and letting Jimmy handle the football operation. Uh, besides the fact that they took over a team that had no talent but did inherit the first pick in the draft and took Troy Aikman and they had Herschel Walker and we know that they made that great trade that set him up for the future. But financially, you know, the, the fans weren't coming out anymore. Uh, the team went 1-15. They thought that Jerry and Jimmy were over their heads. Um, I, I asked, you'll like this story, I asked Jerry, what's the worst business deal he ever made? And he, he was, you know how Jerry talks, and it's, it's sometimes, you know, you really got to cut through it, but he had bought an interest in a bunch of cell phone companies around 87 or 88, and he didn't pay a tremendous amount of money for it, a couple hundred thousand dollars, um, but when it came time to buy the team, he had to sell that interest because he needed the money to put towards the purchase of the team. So he sold it for a million dollars. And then the cell phone era exploded. <laughs> and eight years later, that portion that he sold was worth $700 million. Oh, my God. Was he sick about it? Well, he was, except when I said, well, you paid $154 million for the Cowboys, and they're now worth $5 billion. And if you actually <laughs> needed that million to buy them, then it was probably a good deal. <laughs> and he was just, you know... That just really shows that he really was scraping together, you know, every last bit as most people do when they're when they're buying their first house or something like that. This was a dream of his. You know, he almost bought the Chargers many years earlier, and his father talked him out of it. And he told me a, a story about when his father Pat called him after he bought the team, and uh, basically says to him, "Son, I've been reading everything about you. You're getting killed in the papers." you better not screw this up. And he goes, thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gary, for people who might have an impression of Jerry Jones, mm -hmm. who might think that, for instance, he's a uh, he's just a loudmouth and, and uh, maybe has lucked into some of this and all that, tell people about the Jerry Jones who you know. Well, the Jerry Jones that I got to know in my three months in Dallas before I moved back to New York, so basically February through May of, uh, of 1989, was a guy who I almost felt sorry for in a way because of the way he was being treated in the media and, uh, and by the fans. Everybody thinking he was this bumpkin from Arkansas who had no clue what he was doing, you know, fired the whole organization, um, then he started losing, and, and people really doubted that he knew what he was doing. But the Jerry that I know, that I know now, he's got to be the smartest businessman I've ever come across. And there are a lot of good businessmen. Robert Kraft, obviously, is tremendous. But what he's done with the stadium and the star to <clears throat> further the brand of the Cowboys uh, is amazing. We know how he, he got into the Hall of Fame, basically, because of the way he helped the NFL um, change its business operation and turn millionaires into billionaires. But the things that he's done with his team, for example, uh, Jerry Jr. had a lot to do with some of the things that go on in the star. And, and J old Jerry... The star for everybody who, who oh, doesn't right. know. Oh, right. The training complex. Is their training complex, right. which is beyond state-of-the-art. Right. So Jerry Jr. just coming up with these ideas... To spend you know a million dollars on on a on a meeting room or a draft room, uh, and just do things extravagantly. And Jerry just said, "We better not lose money on this. I don't have the stomach for this." And so their draft room, uh, they with one of their sponsors, they run a run a contest towards the end of August. You win the contest, you get to hold your fantasy draft in the same room that the Cowboys, the Cowboys <laughs> war room. I mean, can you imagine? That's great. Can you imagine? You know, can you imagine Belichick doing that? The team meeting room they rent out to corporations for for retreats, and so he's found a way to squeeze every dollar out of that building, and uh, they were going to 
they were going to open a health club in conjunction with Equinox. Yeah. And when they found out that the return on the dollar was so tremendous, it was thirty five percent. Right. You get you make th- you make thirty five right. cents on every dollar. That's right. I read that in the book, and I just <laughs> said, Jerry is not going to let that stand. No. So so Jerry Jr. has a meeting with the guy from Equinox and comes back and says, Dad, we don't want to be in business with somebody on a on a health club. We want to own the health club. <laughs> so they they have a, a magnificent magnificent health club at the Star. And if you're lucky enough, you get to be in the hot tub with Dak Prescott. <laughs> you know that they had a, an, an MRI machine at Valley Ranch, which was their old training complex, as you know. And uh, they just thought it would make it easier to have the, the machine there. But it wasn't really financially feasible. They weren't getting their money's worth out of it. As many injuries as you have in the NFL, you're still not getting your money's worth out of a very expensive machine. So with the doctors in the area, they, they worked in conjunction with a lot of the doctors and their patients that you send your patients to Valley Ranch. You know, they charge them for the use of the MRI. But you, you can have your patients in the same MRI machine as Jason Witten. <laughs> <laughs> and they had them lining up. I mean, even people who weren't hurt went yeah. to get an MRI. <laughs> you know, you want to be in the same MRI machine as Tony Romo when he had his collarbone broken? Who wouldn't? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... so I want to I want to end by talking a little bit about <laughs> modern times sure. and by asking about Roger Goodell, Jerry Jones. We all know that Jerry fought every step of the way. And uh when uh, Ezekiel Elliott got his six-game suspension mm-hmm. before the 2017 season. But I I want to know what you know that I don't know about this, because there are some things in there that really a lot of people didn't know, because it was a strange time. To refresh everyone's memory, this suspension took place not long after Jerry got into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, was enshrined, had his, you know, had his speech in Canton, and had a party where Roger Goodell attended it. And Roger Goodell had to know when he attended that party that he was going to be whacking Jerry Jones within a matter of days or maybe a couple of weeks. So what don't I know that you know about this? Well, Jerry to this day still insists that Roger had told him that he was not suspending Elliott. And uh, he told me that for the third time and as recently as the March league meetings in Orlando this year. And... After he told me that, I met with Roger after his final press conference at the league meeting, and I said, I just need to ask you this again. Jerry insists that you told him Zeke was not being suspended. What do you have to say to that? He goes, I said, did that happen? He goes, no. End period, O period, no. Is there something about that you don't understand? <laughs> and I said, don't kill me. I'm only the messenger. But the thing that's interesting um, – about were you at Jerry's Hall of Fame party? I can't remember. If no. You, okay, no, so I was not. there, and I I saw Roger there, and I did not see when they were talking. And I have a great picture in the book of Jerry and Bon Jovi and Roger standing together, all with a a glass of um, whatever in their hands. And so the caption on in the. In the, that I wrote in the book was Jerry Jones was living on a prayer if he thought that Roger <laughs> wasn't going <laughs> to. That's suspend. good. So anyhow. Roger's at that party. Now, five days later is when he called Jerry to say he was suspending Zeke. So you know that Roger had to know at that he party. He had to know. And so what he didn't want to do was ruin Jerry's weekend. Right. But what he did do was ruin Jerry's season. And five days later when he called him, Jerry says, don't do that. And Jerry says, well, I will call you back with my official decision tomorrow and he, he called him back and said I'm suspending him six games and um, the relationship between Jerry and and Roger right now is really interesting but Jerry was very quick to point out that he goes you know I still send Roger uh, a Christmas card and a Christmas ornament this year along with every owner and I do that every year so um, I, I think Jerry's business acumen is crucial to the league, and I think it's important for Roger not to. Now, I'm not sure I agreed with the Elliott suspension, but at least the length of it. But um, I think it's really important important for Roger not to play favorites, and he's probably alienated his two closest allies in the last four or five years in Robert Kraft and, and Jerry Jones. Finishing up with Gary Myers, Gary, the last thing I would say 
about just the cowboy's kind of imprint on society. I guess I would ask you, why, after doing the research of this book, do you believe that the cowboys are such a gigantic part of Americana? It's a phenomenon, and I really do believe they've completely surpassed the Yankees and Notre Dame, and even if there's a basketball team you want to mention. Um, They just did an unbelievable job in the late 60s when they lost those championship games to the Packers of becoming a team that tugged at the heartstrings of football fans because they were such an underdog. They were only, you know, they were only came into being in 1960, and by the mid-60s, they were going against, you know, the Lombardi Packers for championships. Um, and then being on on the late afternoon slot on Thanksgiving every year, which Schramm volunteered for because nobody ever wanted to play on Thanksgiving except for the Lions and the Cowboys, and getting that late afternoon slot, more often than not having the late afternoon doubleheader game um, on CBS or Fox or NBC – um, being on Monday Night Football when it was a, a really, really big deal to be on Monday Night Football uh, more than anybody else. Now, you know, with you, they're on Sunday Night Football more than any other team. Um, they they have just – people either love them. It's, it's such a cliche, but it's really true. People either love them or hate them, and nobody feels indifferent about them. And, and that was, that's what makes them really special. I'm doing a book signing in New York – at a bar in Manhattan that bills itself as the official bar of the Dallas Cowboys. They have their watch parties there every Sunday. I had no idea there was a Cowboys <laughs> fan club in New York. They're in every city in the country. Now, I know there were the moose calls at Giants Stadium in a big game in 93 between the Cowboys and Giants, and I was blown away by how many Cowboy fans had gotten into the into the building. But to, to think, there's actually two bars in Manhattan that I'm doing signings at wow. that are, are cowboy bars. And um, I'm doing, this is really cool, I'm doing a signing at the, at the Star on October 18th. And I have Jason Witten, Daryl Johnston, and Everson Walls joining me. So That's going to be great. It's going to be a lot That'd of fun. Be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Gary Myers, author of How About Them Cowboys, Inside the Huddle with the Stars and Legends of America's Team. Thanks so much for joining me, Gary. Peter, you know, I've known you forever, and this is the first time you've ever asked me questions, and it was a lot of fun, and I (laughs) I thank you for having me on. Thanks to my guests, Justin Tucker and Gary Myers. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Drew Brees, Larry Fitzgerald, and Chris Mortensen. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, ZipRecruiter and Rocket Loans by Quicken. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.